The Creative Relay is recorded, mixed and mastered at Smith & Western Studios. If you want to improve the quality of your podcast or start a podcast of your own, go to smithandwestern.com.au and get your first episode produced for free. Welcome to this, a special edition of the Creative Relay to mark International Women's Day. I'm here today with Jane Caro, writer, broadcaster and trailblazing agency creative. So it's really wonderful to have you here today, Jane. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. We really wanted to get you in just to to pick your brains because I think that you've got a really fascinating perspective uh, on the industry and the industry of the past, certainly what it's become, Mm. and the role that gender has played and is playing. But also, you know, I'm fascinated just to hear about your shift outside of the uh, creative agency environment and into a much broader media environment. So look, just just for for any listeners that, you know, maybe aren't familiar with your, your advertising career, can you just give us a really brief sort of rundown of where it all started and Sure. I mean, basically it started because I was really, really bad at everything else I tried to do. So Happens a lot. Yeah. I was very fortunate. I was brought up by a very feminist mother and also a very um unconventional father, even though he was a big, he was a, a, a marketing executive and a businessman and ended up running Record and Coleman and World Series Cricket and things like that. But he was a maverick. And he also was a man who really liked women and really liked smart women. He was one of the first men to promote women um, in corporate positions um, in Australia. And so I was brought up with this idea that if I wanted to have a career, and I did, then I could have one. Mm. And so that was unusual. For yeah. girls of my era. and Seems perfectly natural. But, of course, yeah. but it was unusual. And so I went to uni and I did um, just an English literature degree and I knew I didn't want to be a teacher. Everybody else who was doing English literature was going to be an English teacher, but I didn't want to be a teacher. I wanted to do more than that, something different. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I liked English and I thought, oh, I'll go and do what I like at uni. So I did that. And then when I left, of course, in the late 70s, so I left uni in about 77, 78. And at that time, it was relatively unusual to have a university degree, still only about 10% mm. of people. So you just walked into a job and it didn't matter whether you had some kind of so-called technical qualification or not, you walked in a job. And I got a job in um, an ad agency called Fortune as a um, junior suit and I was appalling at it. I couldn't, I didn't know what anyone was talking about. I didn't know what the printing process was. I just, and it was all old fashioned printing in those days. And it was very complicated and technical and I was supposed to understand. And everyone yelled at me. That's how I felt about that job. I've never felt more useless in all my life. Then I left there and got a job in as a marketing officer for Unilever, Lever and Kitchen. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And that was actually a much better job. Um, they actually did give you some training and actually tried to help you understand what was going on. Um, but I was pretty bad at that too because it was all about numbers and adding up and I'm useless. I can't do numbers. I can only do words. But I was good in the advertising meetings and I was good at the market research. I was interested in all of that. I still remember the way as a client we'd sit in this big row of clients opposite the poor agency from the most senior, my boss, who was the marketing 
director or marketing manager, down the product managers to, you know, completely insignificant me who was the marketing officer. And um, pretty quickly the creative people presenting realised they quite liked me because I'd say things like, oh, yeah, it's really interesting. Could you make it funnier? (laughs) And my boss would say, shut up, Jane. (laughs) It doesn't mention the product every three seconds, you know, all that stuff. Um, I started to think maybe I would like to be a creative. There were very few women doing it. I didn't know how to get in. There was no award school. Mm. And you basically got in through dispatch and that was all about lifting parcels. And those were the days when, you know, you were told as a young woman, oh, well, you're not allowed to lift heavy parcels. Since having had two children of my own, I've often wondered why an inert parcel is something a woman cannot lift, but a screaming, squirming four-year-old, it's That's perfectly fine. 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 They yep. can lift those any time they like. So it never made any sense. But um, anyway, I managed to bypass that and it took me a very long time. It took me about three years to get a job as a junior copywriter. And I got some help. I got some help from Bryce Courtney. Right. I met a headhunter, I think, at a industry too, and I was pouring out my tale of why I've wanted to be a copywriter and she said, send me your scripts. So I just sent them to her. I'd done all these scripts for all these different people. And um, she sent them on to Bryce and Bryce came back and said, no, 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 they're all wrong for these reasons. And this had happened to me a million times and I just thought, obviously, I've got no talent. I should, I don't know what I'm going to do. Maybe I'll have to be a teacher. Um, you know, I, useless, forget it, don't even worry about it. And I did nothing. And then I got this phone call from the headhunter and she said, Bryce wants to know where the re- revised scripts are. He wants to know where they are. And I thought, oh, shit. I didn't so know I, I was supposed to do something. Well, I did. He, I wanted them, but I thought, oh, no, bullshit, he doesn't really want them. And then I thought, oh, well, if he wants them, he must have seen some promise. So I um, I sat up all night and rewrote them and sent them in. And um, he came back and he said, yep, you've got talent. He said, now you want a very little job in a very big agency. And then he said, not mine, I'm afraid. I'm not hiring juniors at the moment, but, you know, You've got some, and that encouraged me yeah, enough. Yeah, that's all you need. That's all you need is to go back out there and knock on doors. And I was lucky. I got a job at uh, what was then called USP Needham. It's a junior writer, worked there for a few years. Then I applied for a job. I wanted to work for a creative agency and I was so green that I went through the, um, I suppose it would have been about 1982, 83. I went through the few award books and I looked at all the ads I really liked and I took note of the agency um, that had done them, mm-hmm. and I looked up who the creative director was, and I just cold called them mm-hmm. and said, "Hello, I'm a junior copywriter at USP Needham. Um, I'd like to come and show you my book." And what happened was extraordinary. So I rang the palace in Sydney because I really liked all of Lionel Hunt's work, and I rang up not knowing that he is, was in Melbourne. I mean, I was naive, and I said. Hi, I'd like to speak to Lionel Hunt. And he happened to be in the Sydney agency that day. And they thought, oh, I must know. No, yeah. So they put me straight through. So he picks up the phone, poor bastard. And uh, <laughs> what does he get on the end but me saying, hi, my name's Jane Carr. I really love your work in the award book. And I've been at USP as a junior writer for two and a half years. And I'd really like to work for a more creative agency. And I just, I'd like to come and show you my book. You know what Lionel said? He said, sure. Could you come about five? And I said, yes. So I arrive. And I told someone at work who was in my confidence that I was looking for another job, I've got a, I've got an interview this afternoon with Lionel Hunt. He went, what? <laughs> and I went to see him. And so by this time I realised it was a big deal. And um, he was absolutely delightful. Yeah. And he went through my work and he said, this is the best young book I've seen in ages. He said, you're not cooked enough for the Campaign Palace, but there's a job going at Fools and Fee Hansen and Derek Hansen's a mate of mine. Would it help if I rang him? And I'd already been for an interview there. And I said, 
oh, yeah. So Lionel rang Derek and said, I think you should hire us. So he did. And then I worked. It seems so simple, doesn't it? I know. So, yeah, that's. I was just, it was sheer dumb luck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. There's a bit of tenacity and perseverance in there as well. But, you know, it set you up for what was to come, I guess. Yeah. Well, then I then I started winning a few awards. I work, was working with Rocky Ronello at, um, because he was a junior art director at the time. We were paired up at, um, Fools and Fee and, I, you know, he was great to work with and we had a fabulous time. We won a few awards. And then I ended up working at the Sydney Palace with Lynn Phillips, but I was married and I got pregnant and they fired me when I was four. Pregnant. Did they really? Yeah. Well, retrenched was the polite word. Right. Um, yeah. And so then uh, you had your first daughter. Yes, I had two daughters um, and I really spent five years doing a bit of freelance right. here and there. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if I'd ever get back into the advertising industry mm-hmm. because, you know, nobody really showed a whole heap of interest after I'd gotten fired. But then I got a phone call out of the blue from Jane Evans mm-hmm. and I'd done some freelance work for Bobby Shewood, who I'd worked with at the Sydney Palace. And Jane was a... Jane Evans at that time was at JWT. JWT, that's She'd right. just been hired at yeah. JWT. And I'd done some work at Saatchi for Bob. I was his go-to female creative basically for the whole of my career. And um, I'd worked with Jenny Eberall, who was great, and she had gone to JWT and they'd said, oh, they'd hired Jane Evans and they needed an, a, a copywriter freelance to fill in for her while they looked for a permanent. And Jenny Eberall said, well, Jane Caro's good. She'd probably do it. So they rang me up and I said, oh, yeah, I can do it, but I can only do it 15 hours a week. My youngest daughter's five, had three five-hour days at preschool. I said, I can do that. Timing. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. You just stop gap. So I did it for like three months with Jane. And at the end of that, they said to me, um, we're getting more work out of you in 15 hours than we're getting out of any of the blokes in 40. And the work's really good. <laughs> Would you like to be a permanent part, like do it permanently? I think I pioneered permanent part-time work right. in creative departments at that point. And it was fantastic. And that's when Jane and I really took off and we would we did the drive campaign which won lots of awards and sort of it's a fascinating story i i have heard you talk about the the drive campaign and to just share it with us because i think it's a really wonderful advertising story we're at jwt we had nine months with no creative director at all and can i tell you we got more good work through in that nine months the whole agency did um than we ever did before or since and and it was because unless you have an inspirational creative director and I had some okay ones, but I don't think I ever had an inspirational one. They just become another hurdle to climb. Right. And that's what most creative directors are, yeah. another hurdle to climb. And um, when we didn't have one, everyone just dealt with their own accounts. And so you had your relationship with your client and guess what? You could get your work through. And we had a wonderful client, a, a woman, an American woman who was running the fabrics group at um, Lever and Kitchen. And, of course, I had worked for Lever and Kitchen yeah. for a few years. So yeah. I had an insight on their processes. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad idea it's to have not. been on the client's yeah. side. So I understood where they were coming from and that really helped. And um, this woman said to us when she gave us the brief, she said, for God's sake, don't give me one of those typical detergent ads, you know, where the stain goes on and the mom says, oh, no, you know, don't do that. Give me your, Give me something different. So Jane and I went, Okay, yeah, please. So we wrote um, a series of commercials. And the first thing we said ourselves is none of these commercials are going to show a woman doing the washing. 
That is our discipline. We're going to get that right out of there. And so we came up with these narrative stories. And um, Lipstick was the one that mm-hmm. particularly did well. What year are we talking here? Is it we would be talking 90... 92, so maybe 92, 92, 91, 92, around there. And um, Just explain the commercial to us. Well, the Lipstick commercial, which is the famous one, is basically um, a young guy in a, you know, nightclub and he meets I remember lots of neon. Yeah, there was lots of them. They're dancing and it's all a bit, you know. And there's a young girl and he says he wants her number and she's got to get pen and paper and no one's got a pen and paper in nightclubs. No phones, remember, in 92. And so she gets her lipstick out and she puts her phone number on his white T-shirt in lipstick. And then he goes home and he cuts to him waking in the morning and he looks down. You can see his boots and things like that and his belt, but the clothes aren't there. And he goes, John! And he runs down the corridor and he gets to um, the laundry and his flatmate is sitting on the washing machine reading a comic book. And he goes, John, my washing. He said, yeah, I've done it. It's my turn. And then he pulls the white T-shirt out and, of course, the, the telephone the, number's the gone. The telephone number's gone and it says, you know, the line, line was drive, gets even the toughest stains out in the wash. And um, simple little idea. Mm-hmm. Got remade all over the world, which was interesting. Unfortunately, a lot of people remade it with his mother washing the dishes. I bet they did. Which was the exact wrong way to I do it. I bet they did. Isn't that disappointing? <sighs> you just thought, no, guys, the whole point is, anyway, maybe it's his gay flatmate, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Because they, because they love doing it. washing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, like yeah. just like women. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, God. anyway, and that just took off. It went completely feral, and we did two others that were really nice little stories as well, and um, people just loved them, and yeah. they were completely different and out of the box. And I, my line about it was the thing about writing ads is doing the laundry may be boring, but the people who do it are not, and that's what you focus on. Well, even doing the laundry might be boring, but the ads about it don't have to be. No, because the people who do it are not boring. So it's like I, you know, when I worked on Toyota at Sachi's for years and years, um, but I remember the client who said to me once when I presented another lot of scripts and he laughed himself stupid and then said no, um, he said to me, the problem with you, Jane, is you're way more interested in the driver than you are in the car. I said, yes, Peter. What a fantastic compliment. It was, but I thought to myself, yes, but what do you think the purchases of the car, they're interested in themselves. Yeah. Isn't that terrible when, because I've had plenty of those sorts of meetings as well where you you present work and they they love it, Mm. but they have no intention of making it. No. And uh, I remember a client that shall remain nameless (laughs) once said to to us, uh, oh, no, that's that's the best round of work we've ever rejected. (laughs) (laughs) I remember those drive ads so so vividly Mm. and they were sort of when I was first getting into the industry and I, I really did think that what you had done with those ads was kind of break the paradigm. I thought, oh, now it's open slather. You know, all ads are going to be this good. And it just wasn't the case, was it? Because I think in my experience, when I've gotten through the ads that I'm proudest of, there's always been an element of planets being in alignment. Yeah, true. There's always been an element of you've got a really good client. I think that I've always believed that clients get the advertising they deserve. Mm-hmm. So when you have a client who, for whatever reason, is determined to do interesting work, 
you've got a really good chance of doing the work. Then you've got to have a creative director who's going to support you. It doesn't, see, I worked, and I don't know if it's because I'm a woman. I don't know if it's because I'm a mouthy woman. I don't know if it's just, you know, what it was. But I used to feel with some of the creative directors I worked for that they felt threatened by me, that they actually didn't want me to do my best work, that somehow when I did my best work that they found that in some way upsetting to them, which was crazy. They should have taken the credit for it, for goodness sake. That would have been fine, but that didn't happen very often. So you had to have that. And you had to have a partner who had the same kind of approach to things as you and so that the two of you worked in that wonderful, seamless way together. And you have to have the money to do it properly and you had to pick the right director. Mm. And all those things had to come into alignment. Mm. And when they did, magic happened. Mm. The other thing I found was... Just sorry, on that, just how much of that do you think uh, was in your control? I'm really interested, you know. Well, I think that what's in your control is you never put up a bad idea. Mm. It can get really, really hard. I mean, I worked on Kellogg's for quite a long time. Mm. Without a shadow of a doubt, that was the worst client I ever worked on. The the guy we dealt with was quite mad. Um, He would be lovely one day and completely hideous the next. You never knew which one you were going to get. Jane and I set ourselves a discipline and that was, didn't matter how many times we got knocked back, we would go away and we would come up with another really good idea. Yeah, right. And that's what we would take yeah. back, another really good idea. Another I idea. guess that's what you've got to do, isn't it? Because if all those other planets are aligned and you present them with something crappy, then <laughs> you're going to make something crappy. And you're going to hate it and, and you're, you're going, going to feel it. sick every time you see it. It's a really interesting way of looking at your work and your commitment to doing it really mm. well. Because well, you just never know. This could be the this could be the time when the planets are aligned. Never be lazy. Yeah. Always do the best you possibly can. I mean, we did try too with the trouble with catalogs at that time is they were very formulaic, and if you put an ad, and they always had to have three ads that they'd approve that'd mm-hmm. go into research, mm-hmm. and you had to do a storyboard for each of those, and then they would make you shoot exactly the storyboard, which is ridiculous. Yeah. So what I that did, still happens, you know. Well, oh, you know what I did. Here's a hint to anyone listening. I said, okay, that's what's going to happen. I'm going to get the three directors that I would use to make each of those three scripts that's going to research. I'm going to be straight with them and say, look, I don't know which one's going to get through research, but whichever one does, we'll be making it. And if it's the one I think you'll be good at, then you'll get to make this ad. I promise it will go to you. But what I want you to do is I don't want a storyboard from an illustrator or a Mm. storyboard artist. I want you to do me a shooting board. Mm. So the shooting board will go into the research. That's a brilliant idea. At least it was a coherent ad. I think there are a lot of creatives out there who could actually use that today on a lot of big pieces of business that still do, insanely, still do exactly that. Well, you get the bloody storyboard artist directing the ad. That is insane. Yeah, yeah, you're dead right. I have sat in meetings where I'm the only woman. I mean, it was almost always the kind of meetings that I was in back then. And I remember one in particular where there was a nutty problem that everyone was trying to solve. And I said, well, what if we did X, Y, Z? And everyone looked at me as if I'd kind of called that up from under a rock. And I was quite young. So for a minute I thought, oh, maybe that was a really stupid idea. And then beat, beat, my creative director said word for word, what if we did X, Y, Z? And everybody in the room went, that's a great idea, dear. It was the weirdest feeling I've ever had. It was almost like they couldn't hear it from me. It was so outside of their belief of how the world worked that a young woman could come up with a solution, a relative, I was a junior copywriter at that time, that, that it was so outside there. Oh, that's such a sad indictment on the world. Oh, 
Oh, another of my favourite stories about being a young female copywriter was um, I'd done some good work at, at USP and the creative director said, oh, you know, I'm going to give you a go at your first creative pitch. And I thought, oh, cool. Um, my art director wasn't doing as well, so she didn't get the opportunity. So I'm going to put you with a more senior art director because probably needs that. And it was for drum tobacco in the days when you could advertise cigarettes. And um, along comes this guy, legs in leather trousers, coiffed hair, you know, and he flings himself on my one guest chair in my cubicle. And he said, look, no offence or anything, but I don't want to work with you on this pitch. And I said, oh, okay, why's that? And he said, oh, no reflection on your work. I hear you're quite good. Uh, but, um, you know, it's drum tobacco and I just think it should be a male copywriter. Fortunately, I knew what he'd been working on with his male writer. I said, oh. I said, but haven't you and um, Fred um, been just been working on um, Olay? How come you can think like a woman but I can't think like a man? And he went, oh, I don't know. Well, maybe it's my problem, but I still don't want to work with you on it and I didn't get to work on it. Bullshit, really. No, bullshit, that's absolutely right. The good thing about that, there's always an upside, is I can put my hand on my heart and say that I have never worked on cigarettes. <laughs> 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 Did they win the pitch? No, fortunately oh, I was really pleased. And that would happen all the time. Men would do work aimed at women because 80% of ads are. Yeah. But as soon as there was a brief for beer or cigarettes or yeah. anything they saw or sport, no, 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 you couldn't have a woman work on that. I used to think, Does, can't you even see? But, I mean, when I first got into the game, it was like, I don't know, if you're a good creative, you shouldn't need to be a woman to write for something that's for women. And it seemed like a perfectly reasonable kind of thing. So you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But now I look back and I go, oh, no, that wasn't a, a permission for me to work on women's things. It was an excuse to keep women out. That's right. It was an excuse to keep women out. We don't need them. The best creative directors I ever had were the ones, Mike Newman was probably the best I ever had, and he was great because what he did was he hired really good people, really diverse people. Like when I was at Saatchi's in that creative department, uh, we had people from different ethnic backgrounds, different ages, and there were more women in that creative department than any other creative department I'd ever worked in. And what he did was he hired great people. He was good at allocating the work, like he sort of worked out what would suit who, and then he left you alone to get on with it. Right. Now, that's excellent management. Yeah. Managers shouldn't interfere unless they're needed. Yeah. And nine times out of ten, if you're good at hiring, you're not needed. Yeah. It's yeah. recognising that. Yeah. And most creative directors wanted you to do what they would have done or... I think that's a really interesting perspective, actually. And, you know, you, you point out the importance of... Uh, just assigning the right people to the right job. And come to think of it, that probably is one of the most important things that you can do. Just go, well, this person is going to solve that. Yeah, this a, person has well. an interest in that. Or this person actually is not like the target audience. That means they're going to come at it from a really totally fresh, fresh perspective. The worst things I saw always were brainstorms. I, I, I loathed brainstorms with an absolute passion. Whenever I was asked to go into one, I thought, oh, here we go. <laughs> Why? Because it was always hierarchical, so the creative director expected that it was his idea that would in the end go forward. And as he had the power to make sure that that would happen, that is what happened. But also I used to feel like in a way he was asking us to flip open our brains and let him pick at it. Um, and I wanted ownership. Mm. I needed to feel like this was my baby, you know, mine and my art director, and we were working on this together and, mm. um, you know, we owned it mm. and we cared about it. 
And when you did a brainstorm script, well, first of all, there's too many people thinking, so it's all going all over the place. And then what the creative director would do would come up with a half-baked idea and say, yeah, that's the one, that's the award winner. And I just think, no, it's not even a whole idea. And then he'd hand it over to you and say, right, turn it into something. But I don't even like it. Yeah, right. What's your opinion then on kind of one of the buzzwords these days really is collaboration? Collaboration means working well with one or two people. In a creative sense, I've co-authored books. Mm-hmm. In fact, I co-authored one book with three other authors and I've never had a problem. It's always been a delight working with them. Um, I don't have a problem collaborating with people. I'm My ego doesn't get in the way. I want the job to be the best it can be and if your idea is better than mine, excellent. I'll come in behind you and do everything I can to make it work as well as it can. What I don't like is phony collaboration, a forced collaboration. Okay, and and Uh, how's that? Well, it's when suddenly everybody's supposed to work together in this false team and everyone's meant to get along and no one has ownership of anything and no one's driving anything and no one has any um, responsibility for anything. And so it all becomes a great big mess and it ends up being the most senior person comes up with something half-cocked and then the rest of you have to try and make it take some that kind sense. of shape. And that is just boring. Um So I never, I I think that there's a lot of lip service to words like collaboration. Mm. And also it depends. Some people are brilliant, but they're best on their own. Great. If they come up with the goods, they should be allowed to do it on their own. But most creative people, and certainly I was one of those, I work better verbally. So I like to sit, you know, my the art directors I really enjoyed working with the most is people who I would just spend the whole day chatting with them about anything under the sun. And every now and again, we'd go, oh, so we could do this for that. You know, it was like, and when it went really well, you wouldn't know who'd actually come up with the idea because um, like Pick Andrews, who was great, Pick would say something, then I'd say something, then she'd say something, then I'd, and we'd build, you know, and we'd, we'd mm. just form this thing. And, yeah, it was like our brains were working in sync with one another. And complementing each other. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the best kind of collaboration where it's seamless and it's and it's about coming up with the idea that both of you go, yes, that's exciting, that's working, that's hanging together. You had tremendous success at, at JWT once you came back to work. Mm-hmm. At some point, though... You went, and this is again, you, you talked about, you know, being a pioneer, and I think you are in so many ways, Jane, because at some point you thought there's a bigger world out there that has more opportunities for what I'm good at. Mm. And I think you were pretty much from my recollections, the first agency creative person to actually venture out into a broader media landscape. So do you want to explain what brought that on? I got driven out of JWT basically because um, a new creative director came in and he was one of those that wanted to stop me and Jane doing what we were good at. So it, it went from being a terrific place to work to being, for us, a terrible place to work. Right. So I looked for another job and I was lucky. Um, I got a job at Sarchi's with Bob, um, Isherwood. And, um, then I started working with Pick Andrews, who was absolutely fantastic. And she and I had some success. Um, we made, uh, terrific commercials for the New South Wales Police. And that's where I did Job Seeker for NRMA, mm. which is one of the ads I remain mm. proudest of. And, um, so I was, you know, enjoying myself. But then I, it got to a point where I thought, I'm sick of working for 
pretty ordinary blokes. So we lost Mike Newman. He left, and he was a good he was a good creative director. As I said, he he hired well, and then he got out of your way and let you do your work. Great. And they were looking for a new creative director, and I thought I need to be courageous about this. So I went to Bob and I said, I'd like to put my hand up for the job, creative director of Saatchi Sydney. He looked at me in complete astonishment. Really? Mm. And he said to me, but Jane, we've asked all the creative directors around the Saatchi network and um, asked them for the top 10 people they recommend for this job. And he said, your name isn't on any of their lists. And I said, well, Bob, are there any women amongst their recommendations? And Bob said, oh, no. And I said, well, that might be part of the reason why. But anyway, I'm putting my hand up. I knew I wasn't going to get the job. But I thought I have to make them occasionally think. Think about it. Think about it. And um, I didn't get the job. Okay, fair enough. Then they brought in a creative director who will remain nameless, who I'm sorry, was awful. And when I looked at this and I looked at him and I looked at the way he was behaving, I looked at the chaos he was wreaking, I looked at clients packing their bags and leaving, and I thought to myself, I I think I felt like Hillary Clinton when Trump won. Mm. You know, you just go, what are you thinking? You would would choose him over me? me? You're quite mad (laughs) and clearly (laughs) I can't work here anymore. So I, I, I stayed. For how long? I stayed for nearly a year because I had st- stock options and I wasn't going to leave till they matured. Money will hold you. Yeah. The day they matured, I resigned. And I went to work for principals with David Barnes and Jack Vaughan and, you know, in lots of ways that was interesting but it wasn't really for me. And then I took a job at an agency that will remain nameless for the money. And That's always a mistake. Always a mistake. It's a recurring theme in our podcast, I've got to say. Always a mistake. And then, and by that time, I had started to feel I've got muscles I'm not using. And I, if I stay, I'm not going to get ahead in um, advertising land. Forget it, Jane. You're not going to get ahead in advertising land. They're not going to promote you. You don't have a penis. And that is where merit lies. So... What are you going to do? And so I started branching out. I started writing opinion pieces for the newspaper. Mm -hmm. And I started, I've got the first eight I submitted published in a row. And so I started to get a bit of confidence there. Then I, and I got approached by someone because I, a lot of the things I wrote about were about public education, which I feel very strongly about. And I got approached by a guy I'd met a few times who was a um, retired school principal. And he said, I want to write a book about education, would you co-author it with me? And I thought, I just wanted to write a book. Yes. So that he and I, and that book, The Stupid Country, is still selling. It's the seminal piece on public education and all of that in Australia. It's fantastic. First book. Um, So I was gaining some some muscles in other areas. And I was, I'd started appearing on Sunrise. Mm Mm-hmm doing commentary on ads and marketing and things. And one day Adam Boland rang me at work and he said, "Um, Jane, would you come and analyse the newspapers every morning for us? Now, you'll be on air at about 6.30 in the morning, so you'll have to get up at about 4. And I thought, well, I'll have to leave my job then because I can't be up at 4 and I could get here in time but I'd just be dead by 2 in the afternoon. So I said, "Um, well, are you going to pay me, Adam? Because they hadn't paid me for any of the ad hoc stuff. And he said, no. And then he went, of course we're going to pay you, Jane. And I said, okay, they weren't paying me much. Let me tell you, television mm-hmm. doesn't. Mm-hmm. But still. But still, what it was was a way out. And yeah. so I said yes, yeah. and I resigned from the agency I hated. And I talked to my husband and I said, it's a big drop in salary. And he went, that's fine. You go do it. I'm secure in my job. You, you're miserable. Get out. And 
I started doing freelance and things like that, but I started selling stuff. The Analyzing the newspapers on Sunrise only lasted three months. I couldn't quite get it to work. The producer wasn't, its heart wasn't in it. It just didn't happen. But it didn't matter because it gave me the way out. Yeah. And then I think not long after that, the Gruen transfer happened. And I was on it for about five years or so and people liked it and they seemed to quite like me, particularly women. And from that, started a speaking career. I got a speaker's agency. I got a manager. Um, Sunrise put me on as a kind of paid talking head. Um, the ABC started to use me for a whole lot of stuff. I started pitching ideas for TV programs. So I've made three documentary series with Compass. I'm about to make a fourth. Um, I've written, I think it's 10 or 11 books. Oh. <laughs> Three novels and about seven nonfiction about all sorts of subjects. And yeah, it's just kind of growing. And uh, people sometimes say to me, can I have a coffee and pick your brain because you changed your career and I'd like to know how to do it and what you plan. And I said, I had no strategy. I had no plan. I just said yes to whatever anyone asked me to do. The more left field, the better, you know. I thought, oh God, I've never done anything like that. Okay. Yeah, sure. I'll give it a go. How do you see, um, because you're still involved in, in various ways in the advertising industry, how do you see the state of it these days? What's your perspective on I that? I just think we've fallen in love with the method of delivery rather than what we're delivering. Mm. We've fallen in love with the hammers and nails mm. and we've forgotten they're meant to build a house. Mm. Um, and it's it's not just advertising. It's basically almost every arena in which you look we are obsessed with our technology and, um, you know, how we send messages. Mm. And not what we send. Not what we send. And I'm only interested in the content. Do you think the pendulum will swing back? Oh, inevitably. Um, and it already is. I mean, I'm already seeing, um, I mean, social media is both um, awful in some ways and absolutely fantastic in others because what it has done, and, and I think it's, no coincidence that we're seeing things like Me Too and Time's Up and um, gay rights. I mean, who would have imagined that um, same-sex marriage would be legal all over the world, including Ireland, um, so quickly really in the last few years? But I think it's social media that's done that because it is very democratic in both good and bad ways so that people with something to say have been able to get, and, and certainly women and other outgroups, have been able to get unmediated access to the public conversation for the first time in history because once upon a time, if I wanted to write an ad that had a vaguely feminist sort of slant to it, I'd get shut down a million times. If I wanted to write an article about a feminist subject, a lot of male editors, oh, we did women last month, mm. we're not mm. interested. Nobody's interested in that. Nobody, you're not. Mm. And what's happened is women and um LGBTQI people and people of colour have actually started writing about their experiences and putting them out there in blogs. or, And pe there is an audience. There are all these people who are really desperate to hear this stuff. And so what it's done is it's actually created huge movements that have just been supercharged by the fact that a whole lot of women have been able to... Oh, it certainly has democratised editorial yeah. landscapes, and that's I for think sure. It has had a bit of that effect too on some advertising, if people, if they want so-called social media celebrities and what do they call them, influencers, mm -hmm. um, involved. So there's been a bit of a switcheroo, which is kind of good. 
And I think it has made it a more diverse industry than perhaps it was what was when I was in it. There is a consciousness now that it really is no longer okay to say that men can think like women or people of colour and you don't need to have those voices there. Now, I'm not saying that you can't. Mm. Um, I think that really good writers and art directors and creative people in general, film directors, one of the things that they have to be able to do is take the imaginative leap to occupy the space of all their characters. But I think that women have felt quite often that the way we've been portrayed, except by the very greatest hasn't understood us at all. And, um, you know, the best dog test, there's all those things that are about how, you know, children's films and how few uh, female characters mm. in children's films. I mean, I always love the best example is Finding Nemo where there's only one female fish in the entire ocean and she can't remember a name for one day <laughs> to the end. Talk about subtly grooming yeah. women to take a lesser yeah. role. Um, so, I mean, those sorts of things we are now being conscious of and I think it's only because... Uh, we've got more diverse voices, getting audiences, and clients and agencies actually are scrambling to catch up. I used to think to myself, gosh, if I was a creative director, the first thing I would do is split up all my teams and I would put a senior with a junior. Mm. Because what I used to watch happening is when you had two juniors together, they didn't work together, they competed against one another because they both wanted to be the one that was the star that got the next Mm. gig. If you had a senior with and the seniors often got a bit, you know, they'd done it all a million times. Mm. So I always thought if you put a senior with a junior, then the junior can't compete with the senior but can learn from the senior. Yeah. But the junior is also going to be really keen to do really outstanding work because they've got to prove themselves, which is going to put the senior on their metal. They're yeah. going to have to keep yeah. up. Yeah, right. But nobody would ever do anything like that when I they, they put like with like, like with like. I was always put with a girl, you know. Oh, a woman, we need another woman. Why? But it was weird how they... It seems so bizarre, doesn't it? Now when you actually look back on it and you go, why on earth would they always be teaming you up with a woman? Oh, I ha- well, it was kind of the chick track, you know. Yeah, right. And I would be... I could see how it worked because I was one of the only women, there were a handful of us, who would get on award juries. In fact, I think I'm still the only woman who has ever been chair of judges for award. Really? I think I am the only. In fact, Esther Clarahan checked for me recently because I was writing it in a book and I needed to know it was true. And she said, yeah, that's right, Jane, you are still the only one. And that was in like 97, 98, 97, I think. That's that's appalling. Appalling. The only woman ever. Women who were listening, it wasn't hard. They said, who wants to be chair of judges? And I closed my eyes <laughs> and put my hand up and they said, I thought that'll go. Oh, don't be ridiculous. They And then I just heard Les Gogg say, oh, well, that's Jane then. Um, and so I got the job. Yeah. Um, sometimes just put your hand up. Just put worth your hand it. up. I remember I was always the only chick or one of two on a jury of ten and all the others were blokes. And I would pull work out. You know, you put the dots on. And I would pull work out and I'd say, guys, you need to reconsider this. This is aimed at women and this is really funny. And they'd all go, I don't get it. And I'd say, I know it doesn't have a penis in it, but it's still funny. Yeah, right. I don't get it. And I think this is why women can't build their careers because they're doing good work. But it's not being ge- recognised. Yeah, because they're getting the briefs that are aimed at women so they're writing the ads that are aimed at women because they're an all-female team then when they go in front of mostly male juries they don't get it and they think it's soft and they think it's not right and even me here trying to say to them but you're not understand it was like there was this feedback loop and they were out of it so 
What advice would you give to young creatives these days? Just what, what, what's your tips? Well, the first tip I have for you is you're better than you think you are. Young people starting out in creative areas are perennially insecure. They don't know how good they are. You're better than you think you are. Mm. Do you think that gets uh, easier over time? I think it does. I think one of the things that comes with older age is you do start to see that when I was young, I always felt people, everybody knew something I didn't know. And I used to wonder what that thing was and how I could ever know it. And now I know that they didn't. They didn't know anything I didn't know. Mm. I just didn't have that confidence in realising that the way I saw the world was a perfectly legitimate way to see it. The other advice I'd give you is be you. Mm. Have your voice. Mm. People will try to make you have their voice. Mm. They'll give you long lectures about why your voice is not right. Ignore them. Some advice is really useful, but usually when it's disinterested, when it's there to try and tell you this is why this didn't work, not when it's there to tell you that the way you think and see the world is not right. That's never helpful because to be creative is to be different. Mm. And if you're not different, if you're just copying other creatives, guess what? You're not creative. Mm. That's the opposite of being creative. I remember one lovely man, but he said to me once, he said, you know, Jane, you're really quite talented. If you just drop all this feminist stuff, you could go quite far. I said to him, but I'm incapable of dropping the feminist stuff. That's who I am. That's why I do this. That's why I see things differently from you guys. That's why my work is different from the work you do. That is the source of my creativity. That's why I was able to get out of advertising and make a career doing something else Mm. because it turns out feminism's time has come Mm. and I happen to be Mm. and have always been consistently putting forward that message that women are just as good at and valuable as men, but they have a different experience of life and that it's one worthwhile watching. That's a really lovely, uh, inspiring message, I think. Uh, I think for anyone in the creative field. Any field. Yeah. It actually is life advice. Yeah. Be you. You're better at things than you think you are. Yeah. And your voice is always a valid one and your perspective is valid. Yeah. It's, you know, I think, again, uh, what this chat with you, and I think this is why it's a special edition, I think it really has illuminated uh, some very common themes that we've had talking to creative people. And one of the ones that you've just mentioned is that thought of just making sure that authenticity of your voice. And nearly Every person that we've chatted to has talked about their most successful campaign or their best work or the work that they're most proud of. And invariably, it's been that work which they actually feel that there's a piece of them in it. Always. Always. Uh, uh, To me, everything I do is an expression of me in some way. By the piece of you that comes out into your creative work, other people see that. They mm. see, oh, look, there's a there's a beating, bleeding piece of a human being and they will connect with that. That's yeah. the thing they co- connect with. And if you can if you can always have something in there that's human and true for you, then other people will recognise mm. it. I always say it's all, it's get the emotion right mm. and everybody will like your ad or mm. your book or mm. your piece because we all, all our life experiences are different. I hate the way advertising wants to divide people up according to role, gender, age, all the things that stereotype us. That 
makes it harder for us to connect with people because no one goes around thinking of themselves as an old woman over 60. They don't. That's not who they are at all. You know, say you were doing an ad and the target audience is women over 60 and you think, oh, women over 60, what are they like? And you think of, you know, grey hair and doilies and those shopping carts and, you know, the cliche, cliche, cliche. Well, no woman over 60 sees herself that way. So you're never going to um, connect with anyone. Hey, well, listen, Jane, it's just been so wonderful uh, chatting to you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it too. Oh, it's been great. So uh, that concludes our special edition of the Creative (laughs) Relay. And, uh, look, I hope we can have you back sometime, Jane. Yeah, I'd love to, anytime. Catch up. Thanks, Jane. Thanks for downloading the Creative Relay podcast, brought to you by Smith & Weston. Go to our website at thecreativerelay.com, made by our good friends at Macadamia Digital, where you'll find a whole lot more info and extra content about the podcasts and all our guests. Don't forget to subscribe, like and rate us. See you next time. The Creative Relay is recorded, mixed and mastered at Smith & Weston Studios. If you want to improve the quality of your podcast or start a podcast of your own, go to smithandweston.com.au and get your first episode produced for free.